Hey guys, welcome to episode 65 of The True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So before we get started, we just want to thank you for the reviews you've left us on various podcast platforms. We love hearing from you guys, so thanks so much. Remember, if you like us, please subscribe to the show and leave us a five-star review. It really helps us so much. But what really helps us more than anything is you spreading the word about us. So tell a family member, a friend, a colleague, or give us a shout out on Twitter or Instagram. It really helps. Everything does. Also, if you want and you're feeling super generous this holiday season, you can donate to our Patreon page where you could get one to two bonus episodes a month, depending on what tier you donate at. And that's patreon.com slash true crime couple. Okay, so enough about that stuff. Let's get into our show. Because when we left you last week, we were halfway through our story about John Edward Robinson, who would become known as the internet's first serial killer. And if you haven't listened to episode 64 yet, we suggest that you do, or else you'll be a little lost. In the first half of this two-part series, we covered all the forgeries and schemes of John Robinson and how he was able to weasel his way out of every one of them. In fact, it seemed he enjoyed getting out of his problems more than he did getting into them. However, his schemes got more and more sinister as time went on. By 1985, both Paula Godfrey and Lisa Stasi had gone missing, and Stasi's infant daughter had been placed under the care of Robinson's brother. During all of this, Robinson was in control of a brothel in Overland Park, Kansas. At the brothel, women were drugged and made into sex slaves, used by men who knew the establishment catered to those with the desires that went beyond the control of a BDSM relationship. It was also in 1985 that Robinson's actions were beginning to catch up with him. And that's where we left off. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Shortly after Robinson had seemingly gotten away with the murder of Lisa Stasi and the kidnapping and selling of her daughter, he was called into the office of the Secret Service for questioning. Earlier in the year, he had asked one of his, I guess you could say employees at the brothel, to cash a check that he had found. It was a check that was written to a retired war veteran. The woman was unable to cash the check. When Robinson was asked questions about the forgery, he was calm, cool, and collected. Not at all like a man who was on parole, or not even supposed to be thinking of things like this. Next, his partner from Equa 2 was questioned regarding the scheme as well. The man, not wanting to go to jail, explained that this was Robinson's entire idea. The woman that had been asked to cash the checks was also questioned by the Secret Service, who now joined forces with the FBI as they were investigating the disappearance of Lisa Stasi and her daughter Tiffany. They questioned the woman about the cashing of the check, but then got right into what happened at the address that's rented to Equitu. The woman denied that any sexual activities went on at that premise. She said that was the apartment where Robinson kept young pregnant girls. It was separate from the brothel. She was then asked if it was a home for young girls, as Robinson was claiming that it was. The young woman said, that's exactly what it is. The young girls are kept in the house all day. 
All of their expenses are paid and the doctors come to see them on a regular basis. They check their vitals and make sure everything's okay with their pregnancies. So it seemed that Robinson, in order to cover his tracks with Lisa Stasi, created a semi-legitimate nonprofit for young teen mothers. However, when pressed further, the woman admitted that she was in fact a prostitute at the brothel in Overland Park, Kansas. She also knew of two other women who worked at the brothel who did the same thing she did. She said that after the young mothers give birth, Robinson tries to talk them into being prostitutes as well. So for a second, you thought that he was doing the right thing, but he was just trying to recruit these women to be prostitutes. I mean, you have to know at this point that everything he does comes with strings attached. Yeah, everything is a scheme. So due to the fact that all of the forgeries and impersonations were a clear violation of Robinson's probation, he was arrested. He was arrested at his probation officer's office upon his next check-in, as the judge had issued a warrant for his arrest. Bail was set at $100,000. When Robinson was arrested, he told investigators that he had great news. Lisa had called his office and let them know that she and her daughter were okay and that she had found a babysitting job. The detective working the Lisa Stasi case wanted to follow this new lead. He went to interview the secretary that had picked up the phone the day Lisa had supposedly called. He, accompanied by the FBI agent assigned to the case, asked her if she had in fact spoken to Lisa. The woman completely corroborated the story that Robinson had told her. However, the two men were skeptical of the story they were hearing. They asked the young woman if she knew Lisa personally. Had she ever seen her? And the woman answered yes to both questions. In an attempt to throw her off, the investigator showed her a picture of a woman who was not Lisa Stasi. They asked her if this was Lisa, and she said yes. When confronted with the fact that the woman in the picture was not Lisa Stasi, the secretary broke down. She had not known Lisa, and she had not called the office. She owed Robinson, her boss, $900. And on top of owing him money, he had taken naked pictures of her, and he was threatening to show people if she didn't do what he said. Blackmail had become just another charge added onto Robinson's long list of offenses that he was now standing trial for. However, this did not keep him from continuing all aspects of his criminal behavior. I mean, you have to think about it. That's like a like an HR nightmare if that was a normal company. I mean, blackmail oh with like, <laughs> like naked pictures or whatever. That's pretty crazy. Yeah, I'm going to say that's not an average uh, office situation. No, not at all. While on bail, Robinson seemed to be more active than he was before. Not only was he seeking out more prostitutes for the brothel and more pregnant women for his apartment, as the social workers in the area had caught on to Robinson's game, and they were persuading the girls that were staying in the Equitu apartments to leave and telling others not to go. Because of this, he decided to shift his deceptions. Instead of trying to reach out to desperate pregnant girls, he chose to target desperate girls from lower-income areas, struggling to survive. Teresa Williams came to Kansas City just six months after Lisa Stasi did. She, like Lisa, wanted to start a new life. She had to work really hard to make ends meet, living on her own. She worked two jobs, the first at a laundromat and the other at a Kmart next door. Just when Teresa felt like she would never get out of this cycle, she caught a break in April of 1985. While she was sitting in a McDonald's, eating her only meal of the day, 
a balding, kind-looking man sat beside her. He made her feel comfortable and like someone understood her struggle for the first time. The man, of course, was John Robinson. He told Teresa that he knew how she could make more money. And he also said that he would take care of her and she would never have to worry about anything ever again. Once Teresa agreed, Robinson moved pretty quickly. He paid for the breaking of her lease and moved her into an apartment that was rented out to Equa too. But Teresa's dream come true life lasted only 48 hours until the monster Robinson was rose to the surface. The second night that Teresa slept in her new apartment, she awoke to an awful pain. Her hair was being violently pulled. She began to scream. Finally, her eyes began to focus, and she recognized her attacker as Robinson. He stood at her bedside with an evil look in his eyes. He pulled out a gun and pointed it to her head. He told her that if she didn't shut up, he would blow her brains out. Immediately, Teresa stopped screaming. Scared to even move, she cried in the dark apartment that was supposed to be her new start as Robinson sexually assaulted her with a barrel of his loaded gun. After the assault, Robinson told her that he would continue to pay for everything for her, but in return, she would have to do something for him. She would have to perform sexual favors for some of his friends. Robinson told her that he would be generous and allow her to keep some of the money that she was going to earn for her prostitution. What a generous guy. Yeah, that's one of the most disturbing stories that I've ever heard. That oh, was, yeah. That was hard to to read through. Yeah, sometimes you just get those, too. You know, like, I mean, just reading the script, it's just kind of... Robinson allowed time for it to sink in. Teresa had to understand that he was now her pimp, and she had to do what he said. It was like she was held captive in the apartment. As Robinson came in and out whenever he pleased, always carrying his gun. Then he began to slowly introduce her to his horrific world. Two weeks into her stay in the apartment, Robinson began bringing over a pot for Teresa to smoke. He told her that it would help her calm down. After the pot, he began bringing over men who were willing to pay for sexual favors. Once she was exposed to those men, he brought her to meet rich Kansas City businessmen who were into paying for sadomasochistic sexual encounters, ones that Teresa never wanted to participate in. On one occasion, a man agreed to pay $1,200 to do whatever he wanted to the young girl. Robinson had told her that he was a man that needed brutality and that he was willing to pay for it. That sounds like hostile, like, right? Yeah, well, like, well, like oh. when you hear like, oh, you know, I'll pay whatever it is to do whatever I want. I feel like that's always like the worst thing to ever hear because the then worst it's like, thing. you have no clue what, because then it's like, what are you going to do? <laughs> you know, are you going to kill me? Are you going to like rip my nails off? Like, it's like that. It's just crazy. I'd, I would be kind of shocked. Yeah. I think fear of the unknown is definitely the scariest thing that you could ever face. The man met Teresa in her apartment and blindfolded her. She was put into the back of the man's limousine. He told his driver to drive around town until he told him to stop. While the limo moved, the man forced Teresa to engage in what she called unnatural sex acts until he eventually told his driver to stop. The man told her to get out of the limo. Teresa took her blindfold off and looked around. She didn't know where she was. 
The driver got out of the car and gave her $1,200 before getting back in and driving away. Teresa was left alone, violated, and ashamed of the life that she was being forced to live. First of all, that's horrible. And to think that there was an accomplice to this, like the guy driving the limo, had to have heard her screaming. A bad part, you know, being that driver is even if you're not into this kind of shit and like you're you're just kind of a victim of it as well as far as well, well no you're not a victim of it well what i mean is all right all right let me okay if you're a driver you don't know what's going on i mean you hear what's happening but like now you it's like what do i do you're you're kind of posed with that question like do i help a human being or do i just continue what i'm doing because i'm an employee well everyone has the requirement to report something like that if they ever see it and i think that because this guy's probably getting paid extra to not say anything he's not doing anything it's the same like with all this stuff coming out about like jeffrey epstein and all of the pilots and the drivers and they saw all these young girls but they never did anything so sometimes being complacent is a crime because it allows it to happen for so long and there's no way this guy didn't see his boss do this before because it seemed like a casual encounter and he just stepped out and paid you know right i see what you're saying yeah i i just got caught up on my words i don't know what's going on no it's okay because a lot of people think (laughs) that like oh my god this poor guy had to listen to that like that is the mindset of so many people yeah i agree so like i think it's good that like society is kind of changing in its viewpoint of if you were there you should have said something and I think that now the pressure is being put on everyone who allowed behaviors to happen like this. Yeah. You know what I mean? It wasn't long before Robinson thought of a new way to use Teresa. Robinson still had an impending trial. And most evidence the prosecution had against him was from his former business partner, the one that chose to talk to the Secret Service about the cashing of the check. Robinson was going to use Teresa to discredit that business partner. Robinson had told Teresa to begin writing a diary every day. He always sat with her when she wrote it and dictated every word. She would write that she believed Robinson's business partner was trying to kill her and that if anything ever happened to her, he was the one who would be responsible. She wrote that she was scared for her life. She was asked to write a final entry where she wrote that she was scared for her life, and that Robinson's business partner was going to kill her. Teresa was then instructed to place the diary and other pieces of personal property in a safe deposit box. Then, under the watchful eye of Robinson, she called his lawyer, who had no idea of the scheme, and told him that if anything were to happen to her, that she had a safe deposit box that held all the answers. So the lawyer, confused, I mean, wouldn't you be like, what the hell? Yeah, I wouldn't even know what was okay. going on. Yeah. <laughs> um, he agreed that he understood what she was saying. So Robinson told Teresa that she was really proud of everything she had done for him. So he was going to reward her. He was going to take her on a trip to the Bahamas. Is this like an abused trip to the Bahamas? No, this is like, a, I'm going to kill you, but tell you I'm taking you to the Bahamas. Oh, so it's like what happens like... To Paula Godfrey. Yeah. He told her that they were going to leave within the next four days. So she had to quickly pack a bag and put only what she wanted to bring with her. 
They were staying a few weeks, so they were going to let another teen in need live in the apartment she was living in. So, of course, because of that, all of her stuff had to be moved into storage. I mean, that's that that gives off so many red flags. I mean, maybe not to her in the moment, but like putting yeah. somebody else in the apartment, taking all their belongings and kind of like stowing them away. Oh, and then, you know, oh, God, OK, taking you to, uh, you know, an island. <laughs> right. I think it's like the equivalent of saying, like, dig your own grave. Yeah, pretty like, much. Clean up your mess for me. Put your stuff in storage already. Yeah. All right. Let's get back to the show. But luckily enough for Teresa, the FBI agents that were casing the Equa 2 apartment for the past two months decided to move in before the Bahamas trip. They questioned her about what she did for Robinson. The FBI caught Teresa as she was packing for her trip. Relieved to finally have a way out of this life sentence that was John Robinson, Teresa told them everything. She told them about the rape, the prostitution, the setup of the business partner, and now the trip. By the end of her story, she was openly sobbing. The agents shocked. The agents understood how much danger the young girl was in front of them, knowing what had happened to the two girls before her. They helped her continue to pack her things. But she was not headed for the Bahamas, though. She was headed for a safe house. They had saved her, just in time. When Robinson found out she was missing, he was furious. Teresa was going to be his get-out-of-jail-free card when it came to his former business partner. He used every contact that he had in Kansas City to try and find her. But the FBI had her on around-the-clock protection in the safe house, and they even moved her periodically. Robinson, in desperation, hired a private detective to help find her. The private investigator was able to narrow Teresa's location down to a three-block radius. And when Robinson found this out, he and Nancy decided to take a drive. They finally came upon the house that had Teresa's car beneath a carport. So you can't say in any way that Nancy is complacent in this because she's going around searching for a girl who was a prostitute for her husband. How else did he explain who she was? Right. I mean, she can't say that she didn't know anything. I mean, even if she wasn't, like, directly involved, well, but this already proves that that's not true, about right. being in a car, but even even just for argument's sake, we say that, you know, that wasn't the case. She still knows all this is going on. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, she's still guilty, in my opinion. It's Yeah, her involvement is very interesting, from day one, because there's no way you don't know this is happening. I'll be honest. If, I mean, if I was going around killing people and having prostitute rings, I'd want you to, like, tell on me and get me, in, like, locked up. You'd want me to tell on you? Yeah, I wouldn't want I wouldn't want you to be involved in my shady dealings. I say, I say. Cause, like, that's so you wouldn't whole... want me to be the Teresa Judice, like, going down with you? <laughs> well, yeah, I just think that, like, you know, that's, like, I'm jeopardizing my entire family. Yeah, but I think he's not thinking that way because he is a crazy serial killer. No, you know, I know. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just saying. I, yeah, of course. You can't apply your rational thinking to John right. Robinson. I can't. Robinson, not wanting to approach the house because he was on probation and awaiting criminal trial, paid the private investigator to question Teresa and to try and get her. Oh, I didn't even think her name's Teresa too. That's actually funny. Oh my God. <laughs> to try and get her to return to Robinson's apartment. The private investigator approached the safe house when he knew the FBI agents were switching shifts. So he was asking Teresa questions at the front door when the next agents pulled up at the house. And once they saw a man on the doorstep, they directed him to leave immediately. 
And when he didn't comply, he was forced to get off the property. So knowing that she was in danger, the FBI gave Teresa cash and a plane ticket out of town. It was top secret information as to where she was going. And because of this, the FBI and the prosecuting attorney made the decision that for Teresa's safety, she was not to be present at Robinson's trial. And this is because if you're a witness on the stand, they need to know like your address is public knowledge. So they wanted to protect her. Now, does does that mean that she was in witness protection then? No, she wasn't in witness protection. She was just in a safe house until like the trial was over and she's going to move pretty far away eventually, even after all of this goes down. But what I think is interesting is that it's not too often that the prosecution or the FBI ever really want to protect a witness more than they want to get a conviction. So they must have been truly scared for this girl's life. Well, it also goes into what she told the FBI agents. I mean, that's pretty crazy shit. Right, that what had happened to her is terrible. Yeah. So they really wanted to stop this girl from suffering anymore. And I think that's pretty admirable of them. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Robinson had a two-day hearing in which it was found that he did violate his 1981 probation on three separate counts. He could be sentenced up to seven years for his violations. And on August 21st, 1985, he was sentenced to seven years. However, he was allowed to be released on $250,000 bail while he appealed his sentence, of course, under strict probation, because we know how well he does under probation. Oh, yeah. In May of 1986, Robinson won his appeal, and his new hearing was to take place, and his probation was revoked. He won the appeal based on a violation of his constitutional rights. When he was charged with crimes against Teresa Williams, but was unable to confront her in court, the judge ruled that violated his rights. So trying to protect that victim cost them the case. This was only one of his trials, though. Prosecuting attorneys had high hopes they would finally be able to get Robinson for his forgeries with Equitu. So he's still, he's not out of the woods yet. But because they decided to protect Teresa Williams, he didn't have to go to jail. Right, because the Secret Service is still looking into all his shady dealings. As far no, as that, the check. that was the Secret Service one too. What What is happening next, the new one is going to be um, his forgeries and the fact that like, All of his clients had been, like, swindled out of their money. Okay. So that's what was coming up next. But in between those hearings, Robinson was actively seeking to grow his business. He hired a new sales manager in late 1985. Soon after the man was hired, Robinson told him that he and his family were going on a trip to Europe and that he was to control the office. The man agreed to manage Equitu's five employees. While Robinson was away... A college girl from Kansas State asked to have coffee with him, which is kind of like weird for just a random girl to just ask a grown man to like out to coffee, be a little nervous. But there she told him about all of the criminal things that Robinson had done and was doing at that point. Horrified about what he had learned about his new boss and taking into account that he'd been working for three months and was never paid any money. The manager made the decision to leave the company. But before he went, he sat down in a conference room with the five other employees and told them the truth about their boss. They all decided to leave with the new manager. 
So now Equitu has no employees. I mean, good, because they, they weren't really doing anything anyway. And even if they were, it wasn't legitimate. And on top of that, they uh, weren't even getting paid. So, um, yeah. I, would I think go I would s- leave for that. Yeah, I would, like, seek new employment ASAP. I just kind of wonder who that girl was. Like, there's a lot of things. Maybe she could be a former victim or someone who had worked for him and it didn't work out or a friend of his daughter's or... Well, his daughter was in high school at the time, but John Jr., his son, he was going to Kansas State. So could this have been one of his classmates or... I don't know. It's very weird. Like, what are the motivations of this girl? So I just... I found that interesting. No, that is interesting. But when Robinson returned from Europe, he came back to an empty office building and he was furious. He called the former manager and threatened his life. In turn, the manager made a formal complaint against Robinson with the police. But Robinson would never be able to follow through on that death threat because in January of 1986, he had to face his second trial. This was for the charges of falsifying expenses and cheating clients out of their money. During the trial, even more counts of fraud and deception would come in. The judge, citing the Habitual Criminal Act, sentenced Robinson to a prison term of 6 to 19 years and a fine of $5,000. Robinson was allowed to remain free until his appeal process was complete. While working on his appeal, the Robinsons continued on as if nothing happened. Nancy, always loyal, helped strategize with the defense team on how they were going to beat the sentence. Robinson himself continued to dress for work and visit the empty Equitu office. He claimed he was working on his appeals alone, but he was up to his old antics. He had placed an advertisement in the local newspaper asking for a secretary for Equitu. This was a high-paying job that includes a lot of travel around the United States and included money for a new professional wardrobe. Catherine Clampett immediately reached out to Robinson to acquire the position. Catherine was adopted by a Texas family in 1960 from Korea. She was a beautiful, petite young girl. However, she had a bit of a wild side. She was very much into drinking and drugs. Her parents wanted to calm her down, so they suggested that she leave her one-year-old son with them in Texas while she got her act together. She was to live with her brother in Kansas, get a job, and stabilize herself, and then her son would be able to come and live with her. Once Catherine joined her adopted brother in Kansas, she began looking for jobs, and that's how she happened upon Robinson's ad. From January until early May, Catherine began traveling the United States. She would call her brother, parents, and son all the time when she was on the road. She seemed happy with her job, And she had only, at that point, she seemed happy with her job. But one day, the phone calls just stopped. It was June 15th, 1987, when Catherine's family was able to actually declare her missing, despite the fact that they felt she had been missing since mid-May. Catherine, unfortunately, met the same fate as all the other hopeful women before her had done. But just after Catherine went missing the legal system finally won out in the battle against John Robinson. After fighting for almost a year, Robinson had lost each of his appeals. 
The ruling stood. Robinson would have to face six years in prison for the crimes that he committed in Kansas, and then another seven years for the crimes that he committed in Missouri. When he turned himself in, his family, because of the cost of his legal battle, was left penniless. Robinson initially served his time at Hutchinson Correctional Facility. There, he was described as an exemplary prisoner. After he gained the trust of those around him, he was given the job of office coordinator for the jail's maintenance operations. And this is a major moment in Robinson's life, because it is here that he learns how to use computers. He immediately recognizes this technology as a tool that he can use for his deviances. He begins writing new software programs, which actually saves the prison over $100,000. However, it's not all good for Robinson in prison. In late summer of 1989, he suffered a series of strokes that left him with permanent neurological damage and the right side of his face partially paralyzed. However, his speech and motor skills were fine in every test that he was given. On January 23, 1991, Robinson was paroled by the state of Kansas and transported directly to Missouri, where he was to serve his seven-year sentence. Although he's sentenced to seven years, he's informed that he'll be eligible for parole in 1994, and if he's on good behavior, possibly before then. So while in Missouri, he spent time at two prisons, the second of which he started his next con. Now, because Robinson had many medical issues because of the strokes he suffered and a minor heart attack he had, he was always visiting the doctor in jail. He also tried to use this as a literal get-out-of-jail-free card, and it seemed to be working with the doctors at the other facilities he was in, but not this one. The doctor here, Dr. William Bonner, called Robinson out for exaggerating his illness and stated that he should not be granted parole early because of medical reasons. Giving up this issue, Robinson focused on his new love, computers. And it's because of this that he gets a job at the prison library. 18 months into his stay at the prison, a new librarian is appointed. Interestingly enough, she is the wife of Dr. Bonner, who had denied Robinson. That's really interesting. You want to know what's even more crazy than that? What's that? Beverly and Robinson knew each other outside of prison. Really? Yeah, the two worked together in 1970 at Mobile Oil when he was there for a few months. That's pretty interesting. It's pretty interesting that their paths crossed again. Yeah. And now this is a perfect opportunity for Robinson to get back at Dr. Bonner. The two spent hours together at the library. They reorganized all the books, and they worked together on new computer programs and updated the systems. Robinson talked to Beverly about his HydroGrow company that he wanted to restart. People are more health conscious in the 90s, he told her. The company had been way ahead of its time when he tried to start it in the late 70s. He told her that the company would take him to travels around the world and make him a really wealthy man. In return, Beverly spoke to him about how she was unhappy in her marriage and how she wanted a more fulfilling and challenging job. She didn't want to be stuck in Missouri. She felt as if she was a prisoner too. And of course, the two eventually became involved in an affair. See, he's so calculating because he might have like a connection with her, you know, on the surface, but we all know 
that this is definitely because of who she is and how she's related to Doctor. I mean, husband and wife. Right. That's it. Like I don't. I. I mean, right away, that's what I think is. It's just about who she is and how she's connected to the Doctor. That's right. it. Right. And he also can't help himself. Like he needs to be consistently working an angle. Is it weird if I say I feel like he always needs a Bonnie to his collide? Always. What? Well. I, well well, that would assume that would be saying like the two are equal. I guess okay. What I mean is that though he needs to have a sidekick. Like he and, needs to always be controlling yeah, someone. I right. think, and there needs to be someone beneath him to help him right. achieve what he's trying to do. Because we've seen that his wife, everyone that's ever been underneath him, whether it be an employee or anything like that, we've always seen that. So it's actually kind of funny that even in prison he's doing this. Exactly, and you know what this reminds me of? What's that? My favorite show of all time. Oh, God. Love After Lockup. Oh, no. And guess what? It never freaking works out. No, it doesn't. So, and if you don't know, by the way, Kay's obsessed with this show. It's one of the greatest shows of all time. I believe, is it on WeTV? Yeah. Oh, we. God. You will like it. It's good, but it's more about the shock value of reality TV and how like crazy some people are. So I think that's the intrigue. I absolutely love it. I can't get enough of it. I want to know more. I don't. <laughs> I never want the show to end. Like, when it ends, I got so upset because I feel like there's so much... I'm going off on a tangent here. It was so... It's such a good season. This last one. Yeah. So if you're ever bored, watch Love After Lockup. And if you do, send me a private message so we can talk about all the craziness that happened. Because nobody watches it with me. Like, none of my friends watch it. So I'm just, like, alone screaming in my living room. <laughs> like, leave him. He's still cheating on you. Yeah, it or, is pretty good. Or he's like still doing crack, so like, please stop. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. So the two, like what happens on the show all the time, they make plans once Robinson's going to get out. But obviously those plans, they never really happen when they do really get out. Beverly was convinced that he was an innocent man that had been abused by the system. And she agreed to put the company Hydrogrow in her name so it didn't raise any red flags. See what I'm saying? Yep. Once again, his manipulation. In the spring of 1993, Robinson was released from prison and placed on parole. He was 49 years old. He moved in with Nancy, who at that point had taken a job managing a mobile home community in Belton, Missouri. See? Beverly, he didn't, like, he goes home with his wife. That's what he's going to do. Yep. All right. Poor Beverly. The couple expressed interest in moving to Florida, but they knew they didn't have money to do so. So they're going to stay in Missouri. While Robinson was adjusting to life back at home with his family, the Bonner's marriage was crumbling. The doctor had found out that Beverly was having an affair with someone. He just didn't know who. The couple divorced within a month, and he was ordered to pay her $1,000 a month in alimony and $18,000 for the sale of joint properties. Okay, before we get further into this love affair, let's take a break to hear from our second sponsor. So Beverly, after her divorce, is going to move closer to John Robinson, and the two continue their affair. As discussed in the library, they started Hydrogrow up, placing it in Beverly Bonner's name. Beverly informed friends and family that she was moving so she gave them a P.O. box to send her mail to until she officially got settled. The P.O. box was set up by John Robinson, 
under one of his aliases, James Turner. This is also the address that Dr. Bonner was instructed to send his $1,000 monthly checks. Beverly had called her mother and told her that she was excited to be starting this new job, where she would be traveling all over Europe. Shortly after this phone call, Beverly's family, friends, and her ex-husband began receiving one-page typed letters that appeared to be signed by Beverly. But while the letters were arriving at their homes, Robinson was securing a third storage unit. He told the woman at the facility, who knew him because he and his wife Nancy already had units there, that his sister Beverly would be in Australia for a really long time. So he was going to put all her stuff in storage. Soon after paying for the unit, he drove Beverly's van to the facility and dropped off all of her belongings and one additional one, a 55-gallon chemical drum. I don't like the sound of that at all. No. I emphasize it on purpose. (laughs) (laughs) From what her mother could get from the letters, her daughter seemed like she was working for a perfume company that was based in the Netherlands, but she couldn't be sure. Most thought that she just needed to get away after the divorce. After all, she was cashing the checks every month. Things didn't seem strange until December of 1995, when Beverly's eldest son tragically died, and she didn't attend the funeral, or even respond about his passing. It was then that Beverly was reported missing by her family. That's so sad. That is sad. I think it's really hard when, I mean, what he's doing is he's taking these adult women away or women that have been troubled in the past and have run away before. So it takes a really long time for them to be reported missing to the police. Yeah. Also, it's, I feel like these women are in good places in their life, but then it's almost like he's able to find the ones that want more and that like want to be adventurous. And that's the ones that he's able to take advantage of. Yeah, you know what I mean? He preys on them. Yeah. He's like a poison. That's... Yeah, because I mean, a lot of the women that he's been around, I mean, they are, I mean, they're, they're perfectly fine. They have. Or he's trying to like, no, they're in bad situations. Like Lisa Stassi and Teresa Williams were in really bad situations. Uh, yeah, I guess so you're right. Yeah. I think he reads people and he finds what they need and he preys on that. He's just a predator. Yeah, I guess you're right. I guess he really doesn't discriminate. Yeah. And it's just sad because Bonner seemed to be having a good life and then he came in and... Destroyed it. Destroyed it. Yeah, that's what he seems to do with everyone. Well, with money coming in from another murder that he had committed, Robinson is going to easily fall back into old habits. The computer was his new tool for criminal activity and he was going to use it to prey on women, run his criminal enterprise and schemes, and keep in contact with his International Council of Masters, using various BDSM chat rooms. On the internet, Robinson was able to live out his fantasies. He told others he was a successful middle-aged businessman with a large farm and a horse. He claimed that he lived an experienced BDSM lifestyle, And it is in these adult chat rooms that he first gives himself his nickname, the Slave Master. First of all, never give yourself a nickname. That's lame. Yeah, I feel like you can't give yourself a nickname, period. Well, it's like a username, like in the chat rooms, but still, like... Still. 
And that's the worst it's name just, ever. I just hate him. That's all. That's what it is. It's the worst name ever. Well, that's a name that he also gave himself back in, like, when he was doing, like, the brothels before he got arrested. Right. He called himself the slave master. Loser. It was, it was in these chat rooms that he was searching for women who were willing participants. But for what? They didn't know. Robinson, like most predators do, preyed on the vulnerable. He chatted with women that were searching for something, and he was willing to exploit that to get what he wanted. He made them feel comfortable and like he was going to be able to fulfill their lives, both physically and financially. One of these women is Sheila Faith. She was originally from Texas, where she had a difficult childhood. She felt abandoned by both of her parents, and she was raised by her grandmother. She had an isolated and lonely adolescence, as her peers made fun of her for her plain looks and her issues with her weight. But in the 1970s, she met someone, John Faith. The couple married, and they had a baby girl that they named Debbie in 1979. Debbie was diagnosed with cerebral palsy. The couple struggled to make ends meet, having to pay both the bills for the house and the bills for medical treatments of their daughter. They downsized and moved to a tiny apartment in Fullerton, California. At this point, Debbie was completely wheelchair-bound and had to wear braces on her arms. Despite her diagnosis, her family's financial problems, everyone seemed to be happy together. Especially Debbie. She was a really happy girl. But tragedy was never too far from the Faith family as John died from cancer in 1991. Sheila and Debbie were forced to live off of welfare and social security checks after that. And as we all know, that doesn't go a long way, especially with medical issues. After this, Debbie's condition is going to worsen. At this point, she only had movement in one of her hands, which allowed her to push the buttons of her wheelchair. During this time, Sheila became very lonely so she reached out to the internet for someone to save her. She initially met two men online. They were both located in Santa Cruz. So, despite the fact that they were both married, Sheila made the decision to move herself and her daughter to Santa Cruz. See right there, barely know anything about this person. That is the worst mistake you could make because you have a sick child. You're meeting these people online, and I guess this is kind of before, like, the whole catfish thing, you know, kind of, you don't know oh, yeah, who that nobody. person is. I mean, it's just, you're uprooting your entire life with a sick child that needs attention to meet these people and hope for the best. Kind of weird. Yeah, I mean, I think I would be a little bit more optimistic if it was one guy and he wasn't married, and it was more of a relationship. But it seems to kind of just be like a shot in the dark. But that could also speak to how desperate and lonely she might have been. That's true. No, I mean, that is a good observation. I mean, kind of what it alludes to. Well, once there, she said that one of the men was crazy and a loser. But the other she met frequently, inviting him over two to three times a week to have sex. When he would come over, Sheila would give Debbie and her other friend money to use while they were in the apartment. Debbie did confess to her friend and her mother that the man that would come over would make sexually suggestive comments to her. And at first they wrote this off, but soon afterwards they read the local newspaper. And in it was an article about the man who would come over for 
weekly visits, and he was under investigation for child molestation. Well, fantastic. Yeah, you good, see, good you stuff. don't know what you get. No. So, not feeling defeated, Sheila again reached out via online chat rooms. Wow. That's pretty ballsy. She is not giving up on love. uh, You know, so ballsy after uh, you're already 0 for 2 right now. Yes. Let's make it 3. Well, the room she visited got more sexually suggestive. So now she's getting involved in BDSM websites. Next, she met a man from Colorado. And again, she chose to move herself and her disabled daughter to Colorado, which was like 1,250 miles east. However, within weeks of her arrival, that relationship had not worked out. But it was okay because she had met someone else on the BDSM chat room. His screen name was the Slave Master, and he was the man of her dreams. And she struck gold. Yeah. Well, I think that she's just so desperate. It's really sad. It's ter- it's it's terrible. See, sometimes when we think about like the internet and technology and all of how how great it could be for society, we have to also remember all of the horrible things that it allows human beings to do. And well, this is one of them, yeah. to prey on people. I agree. And I, I think that that's with anything. I just feel like when you have technologies, when you have advancements, there's also a decline in another area. It's just normal. Right. I mean, I know like a lot of people like say that technology is terrible and this and that, and it's true, but this is the kind of things we have to deal with if we want to have a better life and an, right. an easier life, I should say, an easier way of connecting to things. You know, it, it poses its risks. It's it's shitty, but because it's just our reality. I agree with that. And then just another thing is that our technology is constantly advancing, but our laws aren't able to keep up with as fast as Yeah, I think that's actually the biggest issue, I think, with that. I mean, I don't want to go off on a tangent, but... Do it. No, no, no. But, I mean, you're right, though. That's the issue. It's not that, oh, technology is the root of all problems. It's Mm -hmm. that there's no laws to back up what's going on within technology. That's the problem. Exactly. I mean, nothing's ever updated. There's no advancements well, on laws. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to do, you know, because it's always changing. Well, John Robinson is going to drive to Colorado to pick up Sheila and Debbie. He then drove them to Kansas, where they would stay in a complex, which was really near the trailer park, which he lived in. The strange thing was, this all happened very suddenly. Sheila hadn't told her friends that she was moving out. She didn't even tell her landlord. And oddly enough, all of her things were left in her apartment. So they only took clothes with them. Which which right off the bat tells me that she is fully invested in meeting Slave Master. Yes. <laughs> I mean, that's... I mean, I'm sure he likes when you call him that. Oh, God. <laughs> Soon after they left, a familiar thing started happening. Typed letters began to appear from Sheila to all of her friends and family. But again, the letters seemed legitimate, and her social security checks were being cashed. Also, in the fall of 1994, the Social Security Administration received a medical report signed by a doctor. It stated that Debbie Faith was now totally disabled and that she would need complete care for the rest of her life. The letter also said that all future checks should be sent to a P.O. box, the same P.O. box that was registered 
to James Turner, also known as John Robinson. Also known as Slave Master. Yes, a.k.a. Slave Master, a.k.a. John Robinson. And get this, the letter was signed by Dr. William Bonner. Oh, my God. You know, it's just so crazy because you do have all these moving parts. And there's so in this story, there are so many people that I, I, I'm even finding my it's it's hard for me to even keep track of all the people. I know it's really hard. But, I feel bad. Sorry, but it's guys. it's just so crazy, though, how he's able to just meet somebody and just feel like right away. Oh, I could forgerize that shit. I, could, I you know, I could I can pretend to be a doctor yeah. and write a letter. Screw it. I'll take their checks. Well, what's so interesting is that when he seems to find a victim, he becomes so entrenched in their life and asks them every detail about themselves that he also simultaneously finds out about other people. And then he uses that in his future schemes. And because it is based slightly in reality, that's how he's able to get away with it. Yeah. No, you're right. So since he had been out of prison, Robinson had killed two women and a teenage girl. He was receiving a lot of money from the checks that they were supposed to be receiving. Can you, this low life, like I don't even have words for him, killed a teenage girl who has cerebral palsy. How? How do you do that? Like you said before, we can't rationalize a serial killer. No Uh, conscience. I mean, it's just insane. But like we know about Robinson, nothing's ever enough for him. And he and Nancy had to dig themselves out of a financial hole from all the legal fees that it costs for him to even get out of that first trial. Because of this, Nancy took a higher paying job managing another mobile home complex. This one was larger and in a really nice neighborhood. In the six years that Robinson had went away, Nancy had changed. She was no longer quiet and submissive. She was outspoken, and she wasn't going to let Robinson continue doing what he was doing. She no longer wanted to accept the affairs. So, her and her husband made an agreement that they would stay together for the children, but they would exist in an open relationship. I mean, um, it's about time. Um, You know, I mean, you're talking about what? I mean, 20 years plus of kind of being put down. You know, he's going and doing his own thing with women while his wife's just sitting there. Right. I mean, like we said before, she's not innocent. But, you know, still, you know, you're pretty much abusing, mentally abusing your wife, putting her through all oh, these things. Was. So, I mean, yeah, I've, I mean, take. I guess it does take time. I mean, I guess you never really truly understand unless you're in it. But, right. you know, at least she's kind of moving forward yeah like even in episode one there were neighbors that said oh there's some abuse happening in this home maybe even physical abuse because they saw her with bruises but now she had been alone and forced to become independent because she was left penniless the two older kids were out of the house right because they had graduated college at that point right but she was left with the twins who were still in high school and she had to find a job, support herself. And she became this independent woman who doesn't want anything to do with Robinson anymore when it comes to like a relationship. But then again, they now have grandchildren. So they want to stay together for the family dynamic, which is true. It's it's hard to break up a family. It makes it complicated. Divorce at any, you know, age is complicated because it does 
separate a family. Well, it does. I mean, and even though it happens all the time, um, it's never easy on anyone. Right. But sometimes yeah. leaving for your mental health is the smartest thing to do. And I think that's what Nancy probably should have done. You know? Yeah. There was still a sliver in her, I believe, that yeah. still was submissive to him. I think it's different if, you know, you're with someone and you make that decision together if you're not, if they're not like a yeah. shady killer. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but... Uh, a slave master. Yeah, if it's, you know, a slave master. But if it's just a regular person, I, I guess it depends on the, the relationship that they have, I guess. That's true. Well, within the complex, that was huge, by the way, it had almost 500 mobile homes. Everyone knew the manager and her husband. Nancy was quick to yell at anyone. And Robinson would drive around on his golf cart watching everyone. The residents believed that he knew all of their schedules. And he was trying to prey on their wives while their husbands were away. I believe it. Yeah, like he would try and like proposition women for sex all the time. While Nancy was working at the mobile home complex office, Robinson started a mobile home magazine publication. He changed one of the rooms in his house into an office, and it was from there that he started working from home, and he set up three computers. Of course, he was using the new business to illegally funnel cash, but he had found a new way to swindle people. Online, he continued his work as the slave master. He had endless relationships with women online who shared his fascination with the BDSM lifestyle. When he found a woman that he thought was worthy of being one of his slaves, he asked them to sign a slave contract. This contract ensured that Robinson had absolute control over their minds, bodies, and their finances. Dozens of women signed the contract, and hundreds of women had talked to Robinson. And unfortunately, several of them believed, the women who signed the contract, that it was legally binding. Yeah, you know what? I could see that, right? I mean, you think you're signing something, you think it's 100% legitimate. Mm -hmm. Okay, I have the slave contract. I'm going to read it. Oh my God, yes. I'm going to feel uncomfortable reading some of these things, but I'm going to do sorry. it. Okay, so this basic contract may be used between a master and slave. Of my own free will, as of this date, I person's name hereby grant name of master here in after to be called master full ownership and use of my body and mind now until i am released i will place my sobriety emotional sobriety first in all considerations of this relationship i will obey my master at all times and wholeheartedly seek your pleasure and well-being above all other considerations I renounce my rights to my own pleasure, comfort, gratification, and financial means, except insofar as if you desire to permit them. I understand that for a training period indicated by you, all punishments will be given at a five to one ratio to the offense within the limits of my physical safety and my ability to earn livelihood. I otherwise unconditionally accept you as your prerogative, anything that you may choose to do with me, whether as a punishment for your amusement or for whatever purpose, no matter how painful or humiliating to myself. The contract then provides a space for the slave to identify a safe word to be used to indicate if things have gone too far to communicate physical distress or emotionally unsafe areas to bring the session to an end. 
In the next part of the contract, the slave promises to complete any assignment for the master within 48 hours and respond to all master communications within 24 hours or to seek punishment. I'm like at a loss. I think that like, so for the, for like the purposes of like this BDSM lifestyle, I think this is something that's completely normal. The only thing I think that goes outside the realm of normality for the BDSM world would be the financial aspect. I think Robinson added that in there. So then now when Robinson requests financial assets from these women who have signed this contract and agreed to be his slave, they feel as if they need to do this. No, I know what you're saying. I I mean, yeah, I mean, look, he, he's looking out to make money. I mean, that's the goal here. And to swindle as many people as possible. Right. So, of course, he's going to add it in the clause there. <laughs> yes. One example of a woman falling for the legality of the document is a woman from Tennessee who gave Robinson access to her retirement fund and $17,000. What? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. He lost it all in a bad investment. And she tried to sue him for the money, but of course she was unsuccessful because it's, it's like a gift. Yeah, right. You, you can't like give somebody money and then say, you know, I'm suing you for it. I knew what you're doing. Now I know what you're doing. Well, I mean, she's claiming that he swindled her and saying that he could protect the money, but he didn't. Yeah, no. But as we know, that woman got off lucky because she kept her life. Unfortunately, we cannot say the same for the next girl who's going to come into contact with Robinson as the slave master. Isabel Lewicka was 19 years old when she started joining the BDSM chat rooms. She was an attractive girl with red hair who had grown up in Poland. For the first decade of her life, she grew up under an oppressive communist rule that existed in the country. And in 1993, the Lewicka family moved to America, settling in Indiana when she was 15 years old. Her parents were scientists and got jobs at Purdue University. Big fan of Purdue. Johnny is. Oh, yeah. I love Purdue. Do you know why, Kay? Drew Brees. Drew I Brees. I pay if, attention. If Drew Brees has ever listened to this podcast, you were my idol. Okay. <laughs> All right. Good. I have to throw that in there. And he's a football player, by the way, for the New Orleans Saints, if anybody doesn't know. Well, good. I'm glad you've educated now, everyone, all of our listeners. Purdue oil maker. Okay. Boiler maker. Sorry. Bo- oh, Oof, I, I went too fast. I was a Boilermaker, Boilermaker. I was like, Oiler, Oilmaker. Wait, actually, are they the Boilermakers, or am I messing this up? Or is that Vanderbilt? Oh, well, it doesn't matter. He went to Purdue, so. Okay, good. We'll get back. We'll get back. Yeah, we'll, we'll fix that. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, I'm a little fuzzy when it comes to college sports, but I think I'm pretty, I think I was right, though. That okay. is Vanderbilt. But anyway, go ahead. Go okay. Ahead. As a teenager in the late 90s, Isabella got into goth culture. And those who knew her said that she was artistic and really sweet. In 1996, she met John Robinson online. This is also the year that she graduated from high school. She chose to enter the fine arts program also at Purdue. But nine months into her studies, she dropped everything and moved to Kansas City. This was even a surprise to Robinson. When she first got to Kansas City, Robinson was embarrassed to be seen with Isabella. He claimed that it was because of her gothic appearance, but maybe it had to do with the fact that she was old enough to be his granddaughter. Isabella begged Robinson to let her stay. She told him that she wanted to be his sex slave. And of course, he agreed. He bought an apartment for her, first in the Westport section of Kansas City, and then, six months later, in Overland Park, 
so she could be closer to him. Isabella made money by posing as a layout model and doing advertising work for Robinson and his mobile home magazine. She wrote a letter to her parents, ensuring them that she was happy and safe. She told them that she was traveling in California and would later be headed to Europe. So they truly had no idea where she was. Throughout her 18 months staying in the Overland Park apartment, Robinson and Isabella went to town hall and took out a marriage license. However, they never went through with the ceremony, which makes sense because he and Nancy were still married and had been for 32 years at that point. Isabella took Robinson's last name, however, and enrolled as Isabella Robinson at Johnson County Community College. Pretty crazy, right? That is crazy. So that's a far cry from like being embarrassed to being seen with you two almost getting married. Falsely. Yeah, it's not even legitimate, so... Well, I know, but it's still, like, the idea behind it that he would go and do that. So, like, he's obviously going to great lengths to keep her happy. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, while living in Overland Park, Isabella went once a week into a used and rare bookstore looking for books on the occult and witchcraft. The owners of the store got to know her well and liked her very much. One week, she entered the store this time with Robinson. She introduced him as her husband, and the owner said that he seemed very uncomfortable and really old for the 19-year-old girl. Well, at this point, she must have been 21. He was trying to rush her out of the store when she usually spent at least 45 minutes there. After they paid, Isabella told the owners that this would be the last time she would be seeing them because they would be moving. She did not elaborate where, and because she communicated with no one else, we don't know where Isabella thought she was going. But we do know that she would never be seen again. That's pretty sad. So sad. In 1999, after the murder of Isabella, Robinson was very busy. He was talking to dozens of women online as the slave master. And he and Nancy had bought a 16-acre property just south of the mobile home park where they were living, about 30 miles south. He asked a maintenance man from the park to help him move a trailer onto the property and a few steel 55-gallon drums. All the while, Isabella's family were still getting emails from their daughter discussing her travels across Europe. At least um, he's upgrading to email now, getting with the times and not a letter. Well, he first wrote them, then he started typing them. Now he's emailing. There's a progression. He's getting better. Well, the emailing is a little bit easier for him because he doesn't have to fake a signature. True. So it actually makes it easier for him to get away with his crimes. Slowly, everything that Robinson was doing was beginning to catch up to him. It was difficult having so many BDSM relationships with so many women, as the relationships have to be completely personal. And at times, he would answer the wrong person or send the same picture, confusing people. But in 1999, he's going to find his perfect victim, a vulnerable and broken girl. Robinson broke most of his other relationships to focus solely on Suzette Troughton a 28-year-old girl from Michigan. Suzette grew up in Monroe, Michigan. Being the youngest of five children, she was always the baby. 
After high school, she worked at a fast food restaurant, and she really enjoyed the independence and the money she received, so she chose not to go to college. She started dating someone during this time, but after a few months, they broke up. Suzette took it hard and went through a state of depression. During this time, she told her family that when she was a child, she was sexually abused. One day, shortly after the breakup, Suzette was crying in her mother's living room. She pulled a gun out from behind her back and shot herself in the stomach. Her family immediately called 911, and luckily it was only a flesh wound, and Suzette was easily treated at a hospital. Later in life, she would tell people that it was from a surgery because of cancer, that she had the scar. She never admitted that it was a gunshot wound. However, when asked about this, her sister um, claimed that she was just being dramatic. But of course, that's like a very older sister thing to say. Oh, of course. Yeah. Um, I think that it's more than being dramatic. I think it's a call for help, cry for help. Yeah, no, definitely. And it seemed that she was in, um, she went back and forth with suffering from depression. Suzette eventually found a job as a nurse's aide. She helped care for terminally ill patients at their homes. Her boss said that she was her most trusted employee, a real asset to the company and to the patients. So it seemed that Suzette had found what she was great at. But to make ends meet, she had to get a second job working at a restaurant at night. So it's like, first of all, it must be physically and mentally exhausting to work with the terminally ill all the time. But then also to have to work at a restaurant at night after that, it's pretty exhausting. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It was during this time when she was working two jobs that she began spending her restless hours on the internet chat rooms. She was fascinated by the world of BDSM. Suzette was specifically into the style of BDSM known as Gorian. Now, please, guys, I know zero about the BDSM world. I did a lot of reading and it was just interesting Google searches. But this Gorian, I don't know too much about, so don't hold it against me if I'm getting any of it wrong. But in this Gorian style of BDSM, it's based off of a like a sci like a sci-fi series of 25 books that were written by John Norman in the 60s. And in this world that was created in the books, there is no like safe words or rules. So like the female could never stop anything. She has to just let it all happen to her. So um, it's more submissive wow, than okay. a, di- a other relationship. Got it. So like in the books, the women exist only to serve men and the men can do whatever they want to the women. And then there's like a specific type of bondage that exists in this world. As Suzette got into this style of BDSM, her friends and family said that her behavior got more and more extreme. She had gotten her nipples pierced and her vagina pierced in two places. And one of the piercings in her vagina caused her to hemorrhage for 30 minutes. So it's pretty extreme. Ouch. Yeah. Her family urged her to never get a piercing again. But instead of listening to them, Suzette pierced her own belly button in her room. Oh. Oof. Got the chills. Come on. Oh. It was in a Gorian-style chat room that Suzette met John Robinson. He told her that he was a very wealthy man from Kansas and that he was the highest-ranking member of a group known as the International Council of Masters. 
She was very intrigued by him. And at this point, she had been experimenting with the BDSM lifestyle for years. And she had met people from chat rooms in real life. So this concept was really familiar to her. Robinson told her that he was willing to employ her. He said that he had an old sick father who he had wanted to take with him on a sailing trip around the world. In reality, Robinson's father had died 10 years prior. But they would need a nurse to go along with them as he was diabetic. He offered to pay Suzette $65,000, which is more than triple the $20,000 that she was currently making a year. It's more than I'm making right now, educating the young minds of America. How does that make you feel, Kaylee? Well, it makes me feel like I don't want to go on a sailing trip around the world with a BDSM slave master. <laughs> I'll stick I'll stick to history. <laughs> I'm fine. She had to move to Kansas, though, and he would pay for everything. He would pay for her apartment. He would get her a car. And she was just enamored by him because this was her chance to get out of this kind of like cycle that she was living in could give her an easier lifestyle, but this is also like that slave-master relationship that she craved. So Suzette told him that she wanted to accept, but she needed to meet him twice before signing up for anything, which is smart. True. Suzette told her friends and family about her new job offer, of course leaving out the part about meeting in a sex chat room. Robinson agreed that she should come see him, And in October of 1999, she did. Robinson paid for everything for Suzette. There had to be some type of special interest on the part of Robinson because he didn't treat all of his other victims this way, especially because there is no monetary gain from Suzette. Like, he's not going to get any money. Like, with Beverly Bonner, he was getting the alimony with the faiths he was getting the social security but he's putting a lot of effort into this relationship with Suzette. it's pretty interesting when she arrived in kansas city there was a limo waiting for her when she arrived at the airport robinson had hired people to act as his father his ex-wife and other nurses that had worked for the family in the past isn't that crazy that is crazy i mean those are great lengths to go to to like pretend <laughs> yeah also who are these actors and why the hell would you take that job oh Weird. i mean hey if he's paying right yeah but you got to be like i'm tricking a girl into slavery yeah but right i know they don't know about the sexual aspect yeah they don't but know about all the other stuff that's going on it's still a really weird freaking job oh yeah absolutely of course they all talked about how wonderful robinson was and how much money he had he also showed her the apartment in overland park in which isabella had stayed and many other women after her. It was fully furnished and beautiful. For the five days that Suzette was in Kansas City, she was his sex slave. She wrote to others that she was friends with within the BDSM community, and she told them that she had a wonderful time and thought she had found her new master. She had even sent them pictures of the encounter that the two had. Months later, Suzette returned to Kansas to sign papers for Robinson. She agreed to take the nursing job and to sail with them to Hawaii, Australia, New Zealand, and then Europe. I mean, it sounds so good, right? Yeah, but see, you know, 
if things sound too good to be true, they probably are. Exactly. That, yes, usually. 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 In the time before she left for Kansas, Suzette moved into her parents' house to spend time with them before she left. Most of her things at this point had been shipped to Kansas. Of course, she was scared to leave the comfort of her home and all that she knew, but she was also excited to have an opportunity to make money and become sexually involved with Robinson. In the month and a half she waited to go to Kansas, the 28-year-old woman struggled and wavered back and forth. She told friends on the BDSM chat rooms that she was nervous about going and leaving family, but excited for the opportunity. Suzette finally arrived in Kansas City in late February of 2000. Robinson checked her into a hotel suite and told her that he would be back shortly. The first two days she stayed in the room, leaving only to walk her two small dogs that she had brought along with her. Robinson had told her that they were going to be able to join them on the sailing trip. However, the hotel informed her that dogs couldn't be there, so Suzette called Robinson and he took them to a kennel to be held until Suzette was going to move permanently into her apartment. For another two weeks, she stayed in the hotel. Growing bored and confused, she reached out to her friends in the BDSM chat room. She told her one girlfriend in particular that she was starting to have reservations about this because nothing seemed to make sense, and she didn't know what she was doing in the hotel. It seemed she was only there to be used sexually by Robinson. In fact, she sent her friend more pictures of what her and Robinson were doing together. Her friend told her that if she had a bad feeling about what was going on, that she should leave. But the promise of a better future kept Suzette in that hotel room. Finally, she told her friend that she would be driving off to California to start their sailing journey. They had just had to make one quick stop before they left. Robinson wanted to show Suzette his 16-acre farm. She was excited to see this farm as he had always talked about it. She said goodbye to her friends and told them that she loved them. Later that day, a call came into animal control. It seemed that two very well-groomed dogs were found running around the mobile park home in which the Robinsons lived. No one knew this, but those were Suzette's dogs. Crazy, right? That he had just let them go. Yeah. So he knew he was going to kill her the whole time. The dogs were taken to good homes, so nobody worry. Well, that's good. Yes. The following morning, Suzette's friends got an email from her saying that she wouldn't be able to email much because she had to break her computer down for the trip. She said, by the time you'll get this email, the station wagon will be loaded up and I'll be headed for California. She ended it with, I'm off on an adventure. See ya, Suze. Her best friend on the BDSM chat room responded. She said she would miss her and wished her luck. And as a side note, she had told Suzette that she had ended things with her master. Robinson just couldn't resist himself. So again, pretending to be Suzette, he said that she knew of a great master, and he gave her his own email address that's so insane right he just can't stop himself like it's it's a sickness robinson sent emails to suzette's family as he always did but this time suzette's mother knew right away that something was wrong suzette always shortened her words and misspelled things in her emails 
These were perfectly written. However, the emails kept coming, and Suzette was updating her friends and family on her travels and how happy she was. Then one day, months after her departure from Michigan, her mother got a phone call from Robinson. He was furious. Remember the same thing happened with Lisa Stasi. He said that Suzette had quit her job to run away with the man that she'd met in California. He said that the couple had stolen his bank card and a lot of money. He ended by saying, if your daughter calls you, please get into contact with me again. Suzette's family knew something was very wrong. She wouldn't write these emails and she wouldn't just run away. So they called the police. Eventually, they were put in contact with the Overland Park Police Department, which we know is very familiar with John Robinson. The whole time Suzette is missing, her best friend from the BDSM chat room is talking to the new master Suzette referred her to. Of course, that was Robinson referring himself. She was weirded out by how dominant he was, and so she was a little bit standoffish with him. At the same time, she was getting angry emails from Suzette, telling her to just accept him and do whatever he wants. But Suzette's friend knew that Suzette would never say those things to her. But not wanting to lose connection with her friend, she kept talking to both people. Mind you, this friend is a married mother of two from Nova Scotia. Crazy. Yes, it's a very interesting thing. At this point, again, things were catching up to Robinson. Suzette and Isabella's families had called the Overland Park Police Department, and the hotels in the area had alerted police because one man was renting a lot of hotel rooms, sometimes three at a time. And many women were coming in and out of those rooms. And sometimes, when housekeeping would go in to clean up, blood was found on the sheets and towels. I mean, that's so gross. And like, and that must be so difficult for like the people cleaning those rooms. I respect them. Always, very much. always respect hotels. I always feel bad just asking workers. for extra towels. Yeah. <laughs> well, not because you got blood on them. No. <laughs> The Overland Park Police Department put all of the things together, and knowing Robinson's history, they immediately contacted the FBI. The FBI began monitoring the correspondence of the emails that belonged to the missing girls, with the permission of their families. The one that stood out the most was Suzette's fake emails to her friend, in which she's begging her to accept this new master. They approach Suzette's friend and ask her if she would be interested in keeping up correspondence with Robinson to try and set up a meeting. She agreed, and they had tried to set up a caller ID, but Robinson was using calling cards, so they could never track him. At the same time, agents working with local law enforcement got a tip that a man was staying at a hotel right then and there. Well, how did they know it was Robinson? Well, one of the three women staying in the hotel asked to make a copy of a document she had. The first copy was bad and thrown away. When an employee retrieved it from the recycling, he was surprised to find a slave contract. (laughs) Could you imagine just finding that in the the, uh, garbage bill? No. (laughs) The notes that I found, though, like on the floors of my classroom are pretty disturbing as well. So I'll just leave it at that. The hotels were really helpful to law enforcement. They collected and bagged the sheets with blood, which the FBI all kept swabs of, 
And one of those swabs was positive for um, Suzette Troughton. The FBI and local police knew where Robinson was, but they couldn't arrest him for consensual sex. So they waited. That very week, they were contacted by a police department in Dallas, Texas. There was a woman there, a psychologist, who wanted to press charges against a man named John Robinson. She had agreed to meet him where he lived in Kansas. They had a consensual BDSM sexual encounter until, while she was bound, he began taking pictures of her. She told him to stop and to give her the film. And this is when Robinson hit her with his fist hard on her face and continued taking pictures as she was unable to stop him as she was bound. Later on, he blackmailed her with these photographs, trying to get her fired from her job. So she figured she'd go to the police first. She was quickly interviewed by the FBI, and the charges against Robinson were growing and growing. The task force working on the Robinson case flew to Quantico to brief the other agents in the FBI on the growing evidence against him. They also had to ask for a judge's permission to place a wiretap a wiretap on Robinson's telephone line. After this, the evidence against Robinson came pouring in. He had sent emails to Suzette's friend where he admitted to being Suzette's boss, saying that she had stolen money from him and he hired a private investigator to find her so he could sue her. He had now implicated himself by admitting to knowing Suzette Trotton. Another woman had come to Kansas City, this time a prominent Texas accountant. She, just as a psychologist before her, had stayed with Robinson for a week in a hotel until the encounter ended badly, with Robinson taking pictures of the woman who was tied up. When she objected, he got angry and kicked her out of the hotel room. She called the police and the task force immediately swooped in and took the woman to a safe house before anything could escalate further. Having enough evidence against Robinson, the task force received an arrest and search warrant from a judge. It's finally happening. Finally. On June 2nd, 2000, police arrested John Edward Robinson at his home. They searched his mobile home and confiscated the computers in his office. They then searched his 16-acre property, the one that he called his farm. It was there that they found two 55-gallon chemical drums. They contained the naked, decomposing bodies of Isabella Lewicka and Suzette Trotton. The next location that was searched was the Robinson Storage Units, located in Raymore, Missouri. In the storage unit, three drums were found. One was the body of Beverly Bonner. The other contained the bodies of Sheila and Debbie Faith. It was determined later that the cause of death for all women was strangulation, but decomposition stopped medical examiners from determining any other physical damage that they may have suffered. That's insane. So we'll never know like how bad it truly was, and it was for probably, them in the end. It was probably really bad for them. But unfortunately, the bodies of Lisa Stasi and Paula Godfrey would never be found. Nancy was arrested but let go after she admitted to only thinking that her husband was having affairs. The Robinson family, Nancy, and the kids released a statement. They said this was surreal and that they knew John to be a loving, caring father and husband 
However, they wanted to know the facts before they supported him. The family later on, when the trial happens, they accept the fact that he did do all of these horrific things, but they did fight to try and keep him from getting the death penalty. But they did not support him. It's hard to support when you, you know, anybody when you With hear all that. all those evidence, that, that's crazy. Yeah, I mean, that's crazy. And it gets worse. A witness came forward about a month after the arrest and claimed to have information about the International Masters Club. She, as a working woman for Robinson, was forced to participate in several of their meetings. She told the investigators that Robinson was a member of this cult that was into bondage, rape, and torture. His job at the cult was to recruit women. These women were then raped and tortured for hours. She had been there on three occasions, and she saw women being carved with knives in their stomachs and their legs, being branded, and some of them having their sexual body parts cut off. Excuse me? What was that last part? Their sexual body parts cut off. I mean, that is disgusting. Yes, could you imagine the pain? And these women probably from... You know, they never came forward for probably several different reasons, but they had been mutilated by these men. That's crazy. I mean, that's that's beyond crazy. I don't even know what that is. That's yeah. sadistic. Yeah. On February 5th, 2001, the preliminary hearing of Robinson began. The charges included two capital murder charges for Suzette and Isabella, two counts of fraud, 54 forgery charges, an aggravated kidnapping of Suzette Trotton. But by the time of the trial, the remains of Sheila Faith had been identified through dental records, and the capital murder charges went up to three. After a long murder trial and a media frenzy, Robinson was sentenced in January of 2003. A judge sentenced him to death twice and added a life sentence for what had been done to Lisa Stasi. I mean, good. However, um, he had done a lot of appeals, obviously. And um, that life sentence for Lisa Stasi had been taken away. And um, the second death sentence had been taken away as well. But he's still facing, he's still on death row in Kansas. Hmm. It's interesting that they got taken away. Well, they got taken away because of the lack of evidence that they had physical evidence for the Lisa. It was more of the judge putting that on him. So if the appeal process did ever go through with anything, some things would stand, but nothing's ever going to be further appealed for Robinson. That's pretty obvious. And if they do try and do that, they're not going to be able to because he could still be charged with the death of um, Debbie Faith that they had never put into. Yeah. I, I just think that like, I just don't, I mean, I get it, but I, at the same time, Morally, it would be great that those death charges never get taken off. I mean, in my opinion. Because, oh, of course, of course. I mean, but but the legal system has to appear fair to this man or else it's not going to work. Like, there has to be a give and take. I get it. Yeah, you're right. But one thing that doesn't really ever get talked about as much as I feel like it should is that Heather Tiffany, right, his niece, now has to live with the fact that she has been raised by this family that was responsible for the murder of her mother and taking her away from her mom. That's true. 
I mean, that's a really slippery slope How, to deal with. Like that, the emotionally unpacking that would be extremely difficult and take a lifetime. Yeah, but I think that if your mother and father that took you in are very sympathetic towards what happened and try their best to make amends, I mean, it goes a long way. Right, and by all accounts, they really were. And they, after everything was found out, they allowed Heather to have all the contacts she wanted with the Stasi family. And Robinson's brother and sister-in-law have come out and said he was a horrible man. What he did was horrific. What he did to our daughter and her mother was terrible, but he brought this gift in our lives and that we'll always be thankful for. Yeah. I mean, but like Jesus freaking Christ. I mean, they didn't know. That's the thing. That's what kind of is their saving grace is that they didn't know. No. How exactly this kid was given to them. Right. And Nancy testified that that day that all he knew, all she knew was her husband came home with a baby. She didn't know how he got it. Right. But he ruined so many lives. Yes, he did. Destroyed so many lives. It's terrible. His rap sheet's really long. And he got away with it for so long. But I'm so glad he's on. I mean, I I don't say that often. I don't want to get into the whole death penalty thing, but I'm glad that Robinson is somewhere where he's not going to be getting out of jail. Better yet. He evaded it forever. Right. I mean, better yet, I think we could say, though, with 100% certainty, he won't be hurting anybody anymore, and that's what's the best part about it. That is what's the best part. So, guys, that was our first serial killer episode. Yeah. yeah. Sorry if I was raspy in the beginning of this episode. I kind of cleans it up at the end. She tries. <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you so much for listening to our first two-parter on our serial killer. And next week, we have our first Patreon episode out for the month of December for all of our donators at every level. And again, if you want to donate to us on Patreon, that's patreon.com slash true crime couple. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review. Five stars, please. All right. Bye, guys. Bye, guys.